Laura, thank you very much for inviting me back. It's wonderful to be here and to be here with my friend, Rodrigo Romano. Uh, we, I had spent uh, 16 years serving on the board of Booking Holdings, which is, owns Priceline and other travel companies. And it's fundamentally a travel marketplace. And so when I had the opportunity years ago to join the board of Poshmark, which is a, initially a fashion marketplace, but a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, I jumped at it. It's been a terrific uh, experience for me. And then we had a chance to recruit Rodrigo recently to the to become the CFO of Poshmark. So it's terrific to, to see you here today, Rodrigo. Thank you, Jeff. And also thank you, Laura, uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I'm very excited and uh, for just spending the time here with you and uh, the participants. We'll get into your background in a minute, but I wanted to start with a story which I thought was pretty unusual. You were living in San Jose and you had this idea that you were gonna ride a motorcycle not just up to San Francisco or to Seattle, but you were going to ride from San Jose to Alaska. And that turned out to be quite a story. T tell us about that. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting, Jeff, because not only in Alaska, but it's the end of Alaska. There's a place called Prudhoe Bay. And if you have any one of you watched a series called Ice Road Truckers, there is a road that is called Dalton Highway that takes you all the way as far as you can ride in North America. So I think there was that notion of doing something that um, not many people would do and also set a goal of doing something. And, and yes, uh, we took the trip, uh, was myself and another six uh, guys, uh, seven in total, it was 2012. And I must say that preparing for the trip was as good as doing the trip. And I think that tells a lot about being a CFO, like a planner and, and trying to do that. But look, uh, 12,000 miles, uh, 30 days plus riding, um, camping on the middle of the road, and, and uh, it was a good, uh, a good experience in seeing nature, a very remote place. Uh, but uh, during the time that we went in 2012, um, uh, in June, there is this something called summer solstice, which means it never gets dark. And, and as you go and as you do the ride, some of us were taking a toll. And when we're getting to the point of reaching Prudhoe Bay, which is essentially 220 miles north from the Arctic Circle, uh, one of uh, our friends, Billy, was riding a little bit slow. Uh, and I decided to ride sweep, which means I'm the last guy, and then the other guys were a little bit further. And it turns out that with fatigue, he fell asleep while he's riding the bike and it was a very terrible accident uh at that point i saw something really bad and i saw hey billy is dead and then uh, i started like between getting in a panic mode or helping and very slowly i would start you know seeing him moving and agonizing a little bit but sounding uh and at that point i had something uh my wonderful wife told me, hey, Rodrigo, you can do the trip, but with one condition, I can track you. So she essentially put a GPS thing called spot device that by satellite, they, she would see everywhere I would be at any point. And he had the SOS button. And this SOS button was sent to the authorities. They would send helicopter. It's a service that you buy. However, my wife was in Peru. And she was in a mission trip. And my daughter was in San Jose with uh, my in-laws. And seeing that situation, when I was going to hit the button, I, I thought, hey, if I do that, because I was middle of nowhere, my wife would get a notification because Billy didn't have the device. And that was one of those moments that you have to really remain calm 
and really think about everything that could happen and, and be thoughtful about it. And uh, I was very glad that by the moment, and it took me a few minutes, and by that time, it was about 45 minutes, nobody passing by. And, and literally, when I was about to do it, uh, a car started coming by, and, and he rescued uh, Billy. We took to this place, which, by the way, was about three miles or five minutes. Uh, there was a place called Happy Camp Valley. It's a, it's a population of five people that has an airport. <laughs> <laughs> so they were, they were able to uh, send a helicopter uh, from Anchorage to rescue Billy to Prudhoe Bay and an air jet uh, to go from Prudhoe Bay uh, back to uh, Anchorage. But it was one of those moments that uh, I thought that I remained calm, uh, uh, you know, versus adversity and uncertainty. And it worked out. Uh, he healed. Um, he ended up doing the trip a few years later because uh, he couldn't uh, do with us, and and uh, that was that was great. That was a great learning for me, and I learned a lot about teamwork as well. I could not have done the trip if I didn't have the other folks. Uh, we had a lot of mechanicals and other issues, but uh, but it was a great, a great, uh, great experience, Jeff. So when analysts ask you difficult questions on your earnings call. It's not that difficult in comparison to being alone in the wilderness in Alaska. Not at all. Yes, we can handle it. That's quite a story. Well, let's go back to the beginning. You you were from Brazil. Uh, tell us where where did you grow up? Did you always want to be a CFO? How did you get to the U.S. and tell us the story? Yeah, so I was born in Brazil and always a numbers guy. Um, I was a computer programmer that self taught myself. I was 13 years old in programming. Um, I wish I was born here because I could have been like a founder of a company. We didn't have that concept in Brazil. But going to school, I decided to go and become an engineer. Um, love numbers, uh, but I want to do something different. You're going to see a pattern in my career. I was trying to do something different and expand my my knowledge. Uh, but but back in 2000, and, uh, sorry, 1999, I came to the United States with a very clear goal of learning English and become a finance guy. Um, I really like numbers, but I like also to deal with complex problems and, 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 and helping companies becoming better and bigger and perform better. And that's kind of how my journey here started back in 1999. So I learned English, uh, went to work for an investment bank, um, Bear Stearns. It was an interesting story that I didn't know much about investment banking, but I was a computer programmer. And if you remember, in 2000, in 1999, there was the Y2K. Everyone was with the fear of everything's going to stop. All the computers will stop working. Well, I was a computer programmer. I want to work. Uh, and then essentially I said, look, I want to work for free. I visited Morgan Stanley, Pelic, Penn Weber, and, and, and Bear Stearns and decided to go with Bear because they had the nicest view. It was the most beautiful office in San Francisco. So after that, um, I, I was hired by Bayer. I had I participated in their uh, associate program, and then uh, then went for business school in Berkeley. Loved going to Haas, and after that, uh, after business school, I decided to go outside the investment world and join corporate. Um, so I joined a company called Fairchild Semiconductor, hardcore manufacturing. And, and then I was very lucky to have one of my, my first mentors, um, uh, the CFO there that saw my talent by being a, a former investment banking professional. And that was the first, um, let's say, uh, influence of a mentor in my career that saw, hey, look, you're doing an operating role here. 
with your banking background, I wanted you to do investor relations and corp dev. And then I love doing that on the uh, corporate finance side. Later on, the same mentor uh, taught me something. If you really want to be a CFO, which was my goal to become a CFO, uh, you wanted to learn accounting early in your career. So I had the rotation as a plant controller or the business unit controller for a large division there. And from there, my career started evolving. Uh, I joined Palm Inc. Uh, with the turnaround um, led by Elevation Partners, a private equity at the time, sold the company to HP. I had a career at HP, which was a brilliant you know, experience, um, uh, learning a lot from very, very strong prof uh, financial professionals there. And then I'm going to say I had three exits in my career. Number one was joining Retail Me Not, which is a digital coupon company based in Austin, Texas, to help them go IPO. So we went IPO in 2013, expanded the company, did some international expansion. And after that, I really liked the e-commerce space. I really liked the, the notion of the marketplaces by being asset light, the, you know, um, you know, network effects of marketplaces, and, but I want to see at scale. So I came back to the Bay Area and took a leading role with the eBay Americas um, to help, um, you know, run the division there. And then I saw uh, e-commerce at scale. As you know, eBay, pioneer of e-commerce, lots of complexity, uh, learned a lot. But again, aiming at becoming a CFO, um, I was lucky enough to land a CFO role for OfferUp which is one of the largest mobile marketplaces uh, in North America. And, and that was a great deal of helping the company thinking about monetization, implementing a uh, finance program, setting up the budget and all that. So uh, that led to my exit uh, number, number two, which was the, the M&A. Um, the company merged with another company. And uh, that actually triggered um, me to um, go work for Amazon after that. That was my best employer before Poshmark. And, and with Amazon, it was a great deal of learning. Uh, very peculiar way of running a business. Um, very scalable processes. And uh, that was my last employer before uh, I landed at Poshmark, which I'm very excited to be here as their CFO. Well, Rigo, that's quite a career and at all these really interesting places. Uh, I want to go back early on. You, you came to the United States in 1999. You were an engineer. You weren't in finance. And you you were fluent in English at the time? I was not. Um, I had to learn. Um, that was my first thing. So you just um, picked up, went to a new country without speaking the language? Yes, uh, I guess pretty entrepreneur, but that's that. That's exactly it, Jeff. Uh, my first goal was to learn English, and I did in two ways. One was sign up for a course uh, they call ESL or ES, yeah, English as a Second Language. That was in Berkeley, and then I did something very interesting, which was I wanted to get to know the country and understand the American culture better. So I bought a car and I drove throughout 30, 30 or thirty-four states uh, in the. Uh, course of uh, 35 days, and uh, and I learned a great deal of your culture uh, and also learning English. You know, hey, how do I get there? There was no GPS. How I had to ask, hey, where is this place called Mount Rushmore? Um, how do I get there? And, and it was great. So I learned quite a lot during that, uh, you know, 30-day uh, drive. 
that's it's you have this adventurous spirit which is probably not standard for cfos so that's that's very interesting so you uh you you were an engineer you were investment you were an, an engineer at investment banks but you weren't an investment banker at the time uh and then you went to business school and then after business school then you got back involved in finance and you and you started in investor relations there at fairchild you, you talked about uh, when you went to retail me not then that was the first time you were in was it financial planning analysis your role there no um i probably skipped that in detail but um it was actually another uh, another point when a a mentor in my career i was at palm and i had a business unit um um finance role overseeing r d and marketing there which was pretty pretty big role um supporting five svps and then I loved what I did because it was very intellectual, curious, um, or, or challenging in, in driving it and working on the product roadmap. But the CFO at the time saw that, Rodrigo, if you really want to be a CFO, you want to get corporate FPNA checked off early on in your career. So early on at that time, I had the corporate FPNA experience through Palm and including the, the sale to HP, which exposed me to a very complex transaction and saw things that probably takes um, a normal you know career years to see but i had the fpna checked off before uh when i was at palm and then i'm gonna say my my uh, role at at hp was a divisional cfo role they had the cfo component but also very heavy in fpna given it is a divisional uh, role this idea of checking off these experiences, I guess part of it is just for your resume, but part of it is because you really learn a lot in these functions. And when when I became I first became a CFO, I had never been a controller, I had never run FPNA. And, and so the people on my team reporting to me, I had never done their jobs. So you have the opposite where you you might have had almost every job of the people, about every functional job on your team, right? Because you've been a controller, you've been head of FPNA, you've been investor relations. So that's that kind of experience where you've been in that seat sounds like it's a pretty good way to learn the role. Yes, again, there's not right or wrong. Uh, at least this is based on my uh, personality. I also I like to I like to go deeper in certain areas. So I speak with uh, in a position of you know knowledge, or at least I know what I'm talking about. And I must say that even early on, I used to rely a lot on that discipline. And over time, when you become a people manager, you do exactly what you described, Jeff. You actually have folks that are way better than you uh, doing certain functions that you are not, um, you know, a subject matter expert. So there is a dose of being intellectual careers, but also I learned through my career that scaling through hiring and developing the best, that's where you actually amplify your power or amplify your influence. But that came a little bit later in my career. I must say. Well, well, let's uh, tell a story of Retail Me Not with the IPO. This was your first IPO. And uh, what was the situation? What was your role there? How involved were you? What was the, was it a good time or a bad time to be going public? How long did it take? Just tell us the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, again, uh, was the, um, uh, a great opportunity. Again, I think uh, the CFO at the time um, was someone that I worked in the past. Um, uh, and when I was at Palm, again, he is a friend, is a mentor. And um, again, what, what, I, what I learned is, and for some of you on the, on the phone here, um, uh, sometimes when you, when you do, when you make a move, um, 
you have to, we have a lot of, uh, you know, variables. Uh, at that time, I thought that working for someone that I worked before was a way to uh, control the risk. Uh, I had to move from California to Austin, Texas to take the role. There was some risk of being and going to a place that I have not lived before. And then also the risk also going for a new industry. I was not an e-commerce expert when I joined. So the way that I mitigated that was working for someone that I worked before that could be a sponsor on areas that I did not, you know, handle before, corporate, you know, financial planning analysis. So I joined Retail Minot about six months before uh, going public. And essentially, I was, uh, I'm going to say, uh, the number two there, uh, working really closely. Obviously, I had peers, but my role there was also to really set up the program to allow the company not only to go IPO, but sometimes the most overlooked part is the life after the IPO. And then Doug was very clear, hey, Rodrigo, I need you to help me uh, to uh, augment um, a, a, a organization that was more based in accounting and implementing an FPNA program, not only so we can go out, but also we can uh, manage the street and have a program uh, like, you know, board meetings, article meeting and all that, which is the life after IPO. So it was a good time to join because we were uh, in route, uh, we were, you know, getting the S1 done, uh, meeting with the bankers. I think we just had the organization meeting, uh, you know, uh, as soon as I, as, I, as I joined. I must say it was a pretty uh, intense process, but it was a textbook uh, app implementation. We, we rallied, you know, when we went out. Um, we had uh, even the opportunity to do two secondary offerings after that. We also raised a credit facility with Comerica at the time, like another $100 million on top of the $192 million that we, that we got through. So it was a pretty good execution there. I was part of that. And despite not being the CFO, what I was given was the opportunity to almost act in a lot of the CFO capacity without being on the hot seat. And I thank that uh, to Doug, who helped me uh, um, you know, seize the opportunity there. Uh, we have a question from uh, someone on the, on the call about retail, retail may not. When you were there and you were dealing with financial systems, uh, did you first hire the people with the expertise uh, to then develop the systems, or did you first implement the systems and then hire the people to use them? How do you think about the sequencing of that? Actually, almost like both. Uh, I was so lucky uh, to have um, um, a organization there There was very system thinker. Uh, we had uh, the head of, um, you know, revenue, um, you know, finance there, uh, Tom, and he was like an amazing leader in terms of getting uh, things to a certain granular uh, level in very Excel-based. So we had the folks that were system thinkers there. But then what we did is we also hired the experts, you know, to come in and do that. Not necessarily like a financial, a dedicated financial system person, but since I had already system thinkers and almost like folks that were like writing SQL um, at almost like all day long, which I want to talk later about the importance of the, uh, developing that discipline. So I already have almost like computer programmers working as part of the department. And then we implement Anaplan uh, from a... Um, you know, financial planning standpoint. We also uh, made changes to our ERP. So we had both going at the same time, uh, ERP implementation and financial planning implementation, but it was a mix. 
was essentially leveraging the existing folks because they already um, pretty good in terms of um, you know running the process, but also bringing expertise as consultants for the implementation. So let's take out a plan. How long did it take you from the time you started to the time you went live? Yeah, that was about a six month implementation. And you have to get plan. that done in advance before you actually went public? No, that's actually it? a good question, uh, Jeff. We did not do that. Uh, we did that after going IPO. And there was right. something that I helped the team um, identify was, again, with the notion of what do we need to operate as a public traded company? We did that after going IPO. And was the person on your team who was the project manager for the Anna Plan implementation, had they done, had they implemented Anna Plan before or not? No. And then at that point, we had to rely on the consultants, which was a third party consultant that had done many implementations. And we also, by the way, we had an arduous process, a very rigorous process, even to select Anna Plan. I also come from Hyperion and I'm a super user. So I am very biased with uh, what Hyperion can do. So I remember we had, you know, we had Anaplan, we had um, Adaptive Analytics, I think, and then we had Host Analytics. Those are the three that we are considering at the time. There was a third one, a fourth one that I don't recall, right? So uh, what I'm hearing is that the person running the project had general systems implementation experience, but not specifically for Anaplan. And that worked out well because you could get the Anaplan specific experience from the outside systems integrator. That's right. And that's actually a very good point. Had I not had that skill set within Retail Me Not, I would, I would have started by bringing the system's expertise uh, before. And then sometimes it's not uh, the expertise of implementing uh, a financial planning system, but the expertise of understanding what are the types of transactional datas, data that is existing in the company that will be used to feed the planning system. So that was something that I already had uh, going on at uh, Retail Minot that helped us move to some extent quite fast with that implementation. And you said you also re-implemented your ERP. What, what, what were you trying to do there? What was the limitation? Yes, uh, scale. Um, at that time, uh, we started our international expansion a little bit before going IPO, but that amplified after we got the funds so we could invest in the growth. And what we found is our ERP uh, was not scalable uh, to handle the international um, you know, transactions. So we end up actually even interesting because one of the international expansion came through an acquisition. And when we found that that acquisition was already using a certain ERP, then we actually had the US actually implementing the same ERP. So we are running with both. Uh, it came down that later on, we decided to also do another implementation that it was actually almost like a dual implementation because the other implementation was, um, again, I don't want to do any advertising here, but we use Workday early on. So I had experience about also implementing Workday. And, and we were, I think, one of the first companies uh, to also take that. I imagine that was back in 2014, almost, what, 10 years ago? And then started from the necessity of having uh, HR systems. But at that time, Workday was going pretty heavy on uh, ERP implementation. So it was a little bit more of a complex situation because we had that situation of having different business units with different ERPs. So we, the consolidation was very hard. But once we decided to implement a company-wide, so we went with that other ERP solution. 
So you were doing Workday HR. Yes, and then, then you, the Workday ERP. And then you added the Workday Financials as well. That's right. And did you end up with one global instance of Workday or did you have a European version and a US version? No, so we did a global uh, in the end. Uh, and they actually helped us, again, um, avoid the essentially Iranian ERP. In that case, we were running, I think we were running NetSuite in the UK, but then we would lose the granularity. But when we did the consolidation, so we essentially had one entry going to our US-based ERP. So Workday was implemented on a global basis. That was actually even one of the selling points for us to undertake an ERP implementation because what we found is the productivity was incredible. Uh, it was worth the investment. So let me drill down on that. What I think I heard you say is that if you have separate systems, when you consolidate, you're just taking very high level numbers from one system up to the consolidated system. And then if you're sitting at corporate and you wanna know what's going on, you don't have access to the detail. But if you have one global single instance, you can start with total revenue and drill down even to the invoice level, I guess, if you want to, if it's implemented correctly, is that right? That's right. The other thing that I found is um, you can also, um, you know, reduce complexity of having many systems interrelating. And then that there is always a, a positive, um, you know, a, a benefit by, by doing so. Obviously, also, you have uh, now one actor choke, and then you also um, subject to one vendor. But I'm going to say when you weigh the pros and cons, I see more pros um, of it. And, and by the way, that was back, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. I have to believe that today, the ERPs, they are also developing ways so that interconnectivity uh, is actually viable. Uh, I, I'm just making an assumption um, that like even NetSuite right now would allow uh, connectivity to Intact. For example, let's say they're running Intact, the US, NetSuite in India. So I'm making that assumption. But at that time, uh, it was a better path for us to have one ERP running for the right globally. When I think about the tools the CFO has in the toolkit. I think of systems, people, and processes. And we've talked a lot about systems that retail me not. How did you think about people and processes in getting ready for an IPO? Yes. Um, my experience is um, it's all, it, it's interesting because I feel, and I like to say that it's all like a physics problem, which means it's essentially time. In an ideal world, you do a gap analysis, which is obviously an IPO, we have great advisors that come and they have the playbook. And the gap analysis with those advisors, they're gonna say, look, this is what you need to have in order to go IPO. And this is what you need to have in terms of working backwards. And then if you have the time, you can start recruiting and putting all that in place, like both people and systems. But I'm gonna say nine out of 10, you're, you're always gonna be in a gun to the head situation. So we need to rely on experts that will come in a, in a consulting basis to fill up the gaps. However, one thing that I see uh, is, and, and that probably happened a lot with especially companies going SPAC, or going IPO too soon is sometimes you focus on the people aspect and you neglect the systems aspect. And if you do not fix it, it's gonna bite you down the road because the systems are supposed to augment the people or the organization, the resources capabilities. And a lot of companies would rush through the process. And what happened when the consultants leave? Or what happened when you're already public? 
So the system has um, a, a very, very important role, which is to provide efficiency through technologies so it empowers or augments the human being's power and, and the work that they exercise. Steve Jobs used to say a computer is like a bicycle for the mind. It augments the ability of, of humans. Uh, let's talk about OfferUp. You had an interesting time there. You, you, you raised capital at OfferUp and, and added a lot of value. Could you tell that, tell that story? Yeah, great run there. Uh, great partnership with Nick, uh, the CEO there. I must say that it was a pretty intense um, you know, run because I joined the company as their first ever CFO already in funding fundraising mode which I kind of did when I kind of was on the banking side and an IPO is also fundraising, but on, not in the capacity that I helped the company to do. Um, we did a pretty um, uh, extensive process, um, you know, a couple of months. Um, I actually, uh, it was almost a quasi IPO, like Nick, Nick and I attended more than 10 conferences, um, like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Jeffries, essentially going to places that public CFOs would go to present. And then what we found is through those um, um, exposures, we are meeting a lot of prospective investors. So we were able to pitch the company, talk to investors. And then I also was thinking that um, as the company prepares to go IPO, it's always important. That's something that I learned actually through the retirement process. Early on, you want to start meeting with investors and even analysts so you can start setting the tone, educating the investment community about your, your business. So that was part of the, uh, the fundraising process. We end up uh, uh, with um, a pretty interesting structure that we had uh, equity component. We have also a debt component. So I learned a ton about it, uh, debt from a commercial bank, from non-bank. So it was pretty complex way that we used. But also when you do the fundraising, what I learned is we have to understand what are the needs for the company. And sometimes there is a certain capital that is important for the company at the time um, that makes sense with the cap table and how you're going to use the cash. So all that was taken into consideration, but the net net was uh, almost a quasi IPO process on how we decided to go to market, attending conferences, kind of doing a roadshow, meeting a lot of investors, getting a lot of feedback. Uh, but it was actually uh, very successful. I'm going to say through the process also culminated in the M&A transaction, uh, but I, I want to deem it as a very successful uh, process and a great learning for someone uh, as their first uh, CFO role. So did you actually complete the financing or the acquisition happened before the financing? No, we did. So through the acquisition, the finance came through. So as as the the press release again that's public information so uh the i want to say i wouldn't call it even acquisition it was a merge uh, between two companies and then our entity got an infusion of uh, 120 million dollars of equity and then through the fundraising process we also had some debt on top so when you went through this fundraising process did you, it sounds like you if, you if you had 10 investor conferences you must have had quite a few investor one-on-ones approximately how many different investment firms did you meet with during over how, what period of time? Uh, meeting, I'm going to say, uh, you know, 10 plus, I'm going to say close to 100, but having conversations like about 40. Um, and how long did it last from beginning to end of the whole fundraising? Process? It's about uh, 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months? 
Yes. And, and what percentage of your time would you say was spent on fundraising during those 18 months? Uh, very substantial time. Uh, one thing that you guys on the call, like considering taking those, uh, let's say, pre-IPO company roles, um, you know, fundraising is a uh, time-consuming. Um, uh, the CFO has a very integral role there, and in at that time, I was not only building the team but also uh, helping the company with the fundraising process. So it's hard, kind of hard to put a percentage there, but definitely more than fifty percent of my time. And, and it kind of varies, right? So we have cycles, like uh, through the fundraising. Again, as we went through, uh, we consider many different ways. So you have a time that you you get a portion of what your capital uh, um, needs are, and then it kind of fades a little bit. But over time, definitely like a pretty large percentage of the CFO through that fundraising process. Rodrigo, we have a couple of questions about career advice. Mm -hmm. You can put on your career advisor hat. Uh, one of our guests is a CPA with audit experience and a BA in economics who is a staff accountant. And they're asking, how can they become a CFO? Yeah, great question. Um, it's actually very different than my profile because I, I am more on the FP&A side. And then I had to uh, get exposure to accounting earlier on. So... Um, this individual apparently is um, almost like a flip, which I'm going to say, um, you you have to consider having uh, exposure to number one, FP&A, and number two, predictive analytics, which I think that if you're coming from uh, a staff accounting position or more like a core accounting, you probably want to kind of get, get exposure to FP&A first before you get exposure to predict analytics. And I can make that point why uh, later, but I want to say that's a very important one component that you want to kind of get that checked uh, early on. And once once you have um, the exposure to FPNA, I can talk on how and maybe a few ideas. There are certain other disciplines that I found to be very useful, such as treasury, investor relations is key as well. And then I'm going to say tax, is very important, but uh, I want to say it's always easier to um, to outsource because it's a very specific and uh, discipline, and it takes time. So I'm going to say the short answer will be FPNA as the imminent next step. That will be my recommendation. I think you just said that you had some ideas about how someone could get the data analytics experience after they have the FPNA experience. What what are some of the suggestions? Yeah, and maybe even um, uh, apply to FPNA. You don't. Sometimes you don't even need to leave accounting to get exposure to FPNA. Uh, I'm going to say working with your manager is a very good place to start when you raise your hand and say, look, I would like to um, become a CFO. And I understand that having FPNA is an important uh, part. And what you can get there is getting a project, participating in a certain project for FPNA, which you're going to get your feet wet. And then you're going to be a credible candidate to take an FPNA role. Similarly, with predictive analytics, is very similar. I would not advise you make a leap from accounting to predictive analytics because predictive analytics, um, first, is a discipline that is still being, you know, getting um, solidified, especially with um, uh, the finance arena. But, but it's, it's, it is similar. For example, if I'm an FP&A uh, person today and then I want to get more exposure to analytics, uh, I'm going to start by raising my hand and getting latched in a project, uh, participate, sometimes lead a project, 
co-own a project with the analytics. And the other ways to do it, which I've done earlier in my career, go get a course. When I came to the United States in 1999 and I got the role at Bear, imagine there was when e-commerce was getting really, really its um, you know, um, attraction. And then I signed up for courses in e-commerce, e-business at the time. And I invested the time, like we're months studying. But that helped me because most of the clients were actually taking companies um, um, public uh, in the e-commerce arena. And for me, it made me becoming more like a subject matter expertise. So that's another tip that I'm going to give, like sign up for a course. There was a third one, which is a 10-day conference. There are plenty of FP&A conferences there. There are plenty of predictive analytics there that you can sign up and you're going to meet people and you're going to hear what is uh, the latest. And number four, it's reading. They're great books for both, you know, FP&A and, and predictive analytics. Um, that's fascinating, how this course. Were, were these in-person courses or online courses that you signed up for? That's yes, well, at, at that time, we were actually in-person courses. Uh, um, E-commerce was taught by, you know, folks from the University of California, Berkeley Extension. They had actually a certificate program. I was able to get the certificate of e-commerce from Berkeley back in, back in the day. But today, I mean, with uh, the, the online, it's so easy. You don't need to go and have to work and go and sit in a class until 10 p.m. at night. You can actually even control your pace. You can get a Saturday. You can get on your, your own time. I, I'm going to say continue education today. It's much easier. It's essentially on your fingertips. But the, these were real courses. You took, you had homework, you had exams. It wasn't totally. just sort of yes. A, yes. Oh. We had exam to get the, the certificate. I, and at that point, it was, again, maybe I, I went overboard a little bit, but I got my certificate in e-commerce, in e-business, in finance. And it was a fourth one that I don't even remember right now. But I was like very hungry in terms of learning. Well, the e-commerce certificate probably comes in handy at Poshmark, doesn't it? Totally. Totally. It does. We have a question from Edna about the soft skills of a CFO. One of the key skills is to be a storyteller. Do you think that's an important skill? And, and how have you, did you take a course on becoming a better storyteller? How, how do you learn how to be a storyteller as a CFO? The answer is yes, as long as the story you're telling is based on facts, is based on metrics and numbers. Because I'm going to say the, the, the worst situation is a CFO that is just a storyteller, but not, um, you know, tied to facts, metrics, and numbers. The combination is very powerful. And in fact, uh, in my prior uh, uh, companies, one of the things that I encouraged um, folks on my team to do are were actually leaning in soft skills, communication, influencing. Like those are very important courses that uh, one should be taking on. And yes, like the work of CFO, especially on the public um, you know, level, it is essentially talking to investors, talking to the street, talking to employees, talking to um, board, someone like Jeff. And then I think be able to articulate in a concise manner, in a meaningful manner, with simplicity and transparency backed on numbers, it is a very powerful combination. It seems like wherever you went, you were learning quickly. And the one company I've never worked for that I always wanted to work for was Amazon. Mm -hmm. I'm reading this book called Working Backwards about sort of Amazon management philosophy. 
what takeaways do you have from your time at Amazon that you you can bring with you to to Poshmark or other places? Yeah, look. Uh, so first of all, I've been very fortunate to have worked with Bill Carr, who was the co-author of that book. And, oh, really? And, and, and Bill, when I was at, at, at OfferUp, uh, he was our uh, chief operating officer. And oftentimes, Bill was essentially writing the book, um, you know, when, when um, we had some, you know, uh, talks and engagements there. Uh, I actually had the, 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 you know, the opportunity to learn the Amazon ways even before going to Amazon uh, work for Amazon. And in fact, that was something that inspired me to work for Amazon because I saw the work that Bill did um, and some of the other Amazon folks that they brought to offer up on how effective, scalable uh, the ways of working for Amazon is. Uh, you learn that the book is very useful. I mean, I recommend all of you uh, on the phone here. It's an easy read. It's very applicable. But if I'm going to cite, you know, a few things, um, is the scalability of the process, the focus on metrics, and something that I learned, the focus on controllable inputs. I think that for me was a breakthrough. And in fact, even if you asked me, hey, Rodrigo, what would you have done if there was one thing that you would have done differently in your career? I was probably working for Amazon earlier on in my career. Um, because some of those learnings are very important. Like if I would double click on the controllable inputs, are essentially when you spend most of the time focusing on things that you control because they will drive the outcome as opposed to work only on the outcome or spend most of the time on outcome. What I mean is output. Let me give an example. Let's say that you have, you run a, a company that is very based on sales. There's a sales force. Let's say that the sales numbers are not great. Having a conversation with the head of sales, beating the head of sales to say, hey, bring me more sales dollars, bring me more revenue, is not as effective of understanding what are the inputs that you control that will have transfer function that leads to revenue, such as how many account executives you have today, how many you have onboarded, how long does it take to ramp, how many calls do they do per day, and then focus on those metrics and monitoring, having discussions around it. Because there are things that you don't control. That's why I'm saying the output, sometimes your sales may not be as high as expected despite you're focusing on the control inputs because of externalities. So having a conversation only on the output would not drive the necessary precision to drive to action and investments. I'm gonna say, that's what I learned. I mean, had I learned that before my career? Yes, but not to the point that Amazon understands it and builds process at scale. So we have a quarter-end conversation that you talk about your financial performance, but 85% of the time, you're talking about your controllable inputs. And I thought that was a very effective way to run the business. So one of the keys is focusing on inputs, not outputs. The output, if you, if you have the right inputs, the outputs will follow. How do you think about how many inputs you should focus on? Are there three or 30 or 300 or 3,000? Well, uh, the fewer, the better. However, it's interesting because like, you know, I've been in meetings with Amazon. We're going through 130 metrics. Um, the importance is not like the number, but like uh, at least how you decouple it. For example, there is a notion that actually we are talking quite, um, you know, recently right now, which I call the North Star metric. 
So think about the metric that if you do more, you know that you're going to get better. Let, let me give, give you an example for Google. Google at some point, based on the, the you know, pieces that I, uh, that I read, at some point they found that one, I think it's a nanosecond, a millisecond of saving search can drive $1 billion of market cap. Once they made this as a North Star metric for engineering, guess what? Magic happened because the workforce would be obsessed about making search so relevant and so fast that every time that you return something with high relevance and speed, they would do what? They would sell more advertising. They would be more relevant. They would get more traffic. And they were able to connect. And in fact, what I've heard from my friends at Google, it's actually a very close correlation. They can literally report how much they improved in the millisecond or nanosecond uh, in terms of search to an outcome. So that's one example of the importance of that. So anyway, do they have one metric to run the business? No, but it starts with that. And then as you go down to the organization, there will be inputs of inputs and inputs and outputs of outputs. The understanding the transfer function to the level that we can control is the, is the magic behind it. Yeah, what, uh, what I've heard about Google, my son-in-law worked at Google for a while, and what he said is it, it's much more complex than we think because the, the one metric is speed of search results. But as you can imagine, everyone in the world uses Google. They're all using different hardware, different phone, mostly phones and computers. They're using different operating systems. Some people are still on operating systems that are several years old and they haven't upgraded their phones. And then there are different countries on different cellular systems or Wi-Fi systems. So the speed obviously varies quite a bit based on all those variables. And so they have teams within Google focusing on just how do I increase the speed on Android in India you know, or, or something like that. So it's, it can be pretty granular. When, when you think about e-commerce companies like eBay and Poshmark, one of the key metrics, the input metrics is the effectiveness of the advertising. You spend a dollar on advertising, how do you convert that into a customer and revenue? How should people who are in e-commerce kind of businesses that have big advertising budgets, budgets think about applying that Amazon philosophy? Yeah, there is the other thing that we, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, used to say in, in the company, which is also the the power of the averaging segmentation. Um, you might um, see a metric and draw conclusions too fast without unpacking it. So I'm going to say, uh, let, let's say you're making an investment uh, today in advertising. One of the key metrics for advertising, let's say that you go for TV, is number of impressions. So you're going to say for this amount of this, this dollar, I'm going to get this you know, number of impressions. So, uh, and you might see fluctuation of that number, but there are many things that we need to see beyond it, like how much of those impressions are coming from a certain metropolitan area, a certain, you know, time of the day, the channels. So I want to say the, in a very high, the highest possible level is like ROIS, like we used to use that at, at eBay, which is return on ad spend. Uh, that's a way that we, you know, measure the ROI. And then the return would manifest um, on um, certain metrics that you want to optimize. Sometimes you're you're optimizing for volume of transactions. So it's important for you to see what we also call the ratio. For every dollar that I'm going to spend, how many 
or how much GMV I'm going to get there. I get $1 here, I get $10 of GMV. But then it's also important if you're also optimizing for profitability, uh, you may actually get want to get a lower, let's say, our GMV ratio if you're getting, in the case of eBay, for example, a sale of jewelry uh, will drive a higher take rate or a higher profitability as opposed to electronics. So sometimes you can get a lot of people transacting or like investments in people to come and buy electronics, but that will drive a higher GMV, but it may not be as profitable as a lower GMV ratio, but with a higher take rate. So I'm going to say it's, it's, it's uh, the, the marketing investment has to be tied to the certain strategy that is important for you at the time. There are times for companies that you're focusing on growth. There are times that you're focusing on marketing expansion or market expansion or focusing on profitability. At the highest level, that's how I would start answering the question. Awesome. I'm just jumping in here really quick. We've got a little under 10 minutes left. Um, thank you all for the really great questions that you've submitted so far. Um, if you have more questions for Rodrigo, go ahead and use the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen uh, to submit those. Um, but really quickly, uh, 30 seconds about Airbase. We are a spend management platform. We consolidate your corporate card program, build payments, and expense reimbursements all in one place, giving you a lot better visibility and control. I'm just going to launch a little poll. If you'd like to learn more, we will follow up with you. Um, but if not, no worries. And I'm going to hand it back to Jeff. Great. And one reason why I'm involved in Airbase is because I'm, a, I'm a, the, an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, where we have over 100 portfolio companies. And, and many of our companies are customers of Airbase. And they told me how great it was. And that led me to call up Airbase and say, who are you? And <laughs> why are you so great? So a lot, a lot of very happy, referenceable customers. Uh, let's talk about mentors, Rodrigo. You talked about how important uh, they were in your career. If you're someone who doesn't have a mentor now, how do you get one? Well, it's closer than what you think. It can be your boss's boss. You know, it can be. And by the way, um, you know, start by going for people that you worked before, people that you presented before. Um, and then don't be uh, surprised that uh, the response will be even better than expected. Don't be intimidated. Um, I get a lot of, um, you know, um, you know, kickback when I when someone calls me and asks for advice or asks for a question. So I want to say, start from uh, people that at least have uh, knowledge of you. But the best ones are folks that you know have um, had had interest in your career before. And then uh, it could be a former boss. I think it's a great, you know, way. And if I look at, there are very, there are five mentors that are very important in my career. And the way that they shaped me was early on in my career that I didn't understand what it would take to become a CFO. So to some extent, I outsourced that without knowing that decisions. It was when people put me in roles that uh, expanded um my knowledge and also put me on the challenge but i'm going to say there's not like the right recipe but being out there is the most important thing like participating in conferences i know today is hard because of covid and the restrictions but going forward like what you're doing here today is very important because you're seeing people you may see a participant list may shoot me an email uh, and that's kind of how things uh, work and sometimes you're going to recommend someone else but there's no there's no loss of being out there 
be inquisitive and even look at your inner circle or folks that are close to you, former boss, boss's boss, or uh, folks that kind of have some knowledge of you. You've been talking about the mentor relationship with senior people or you being a mentor to junior people. What about people who are not in the finance department? How have you worked with teams outside of finance, either your peers or, or other people throughout the organization? And what have you found worked well? Yeah, I must say that that's actually probably an area that I want to lean in more. I don't have, there are not many like occurrences that come to, to mind here, but we are, what I also found is um, as leaders, what you're going to find is the, the, the advice more often than not is not necessarily about the discipline, but it's about sometimes the soft skills that Edna was talking about. Sometimes the situation that someone comes to you and say, look, I'm a marketeer. I don't think I'm being, um, you know, valued enough uh, where I am and I'm not getting the promotion. So, you know, what a mentor does, sometimes even like a coach is not telling what the person would do, but asking questions. Why do you feel like that? What have you done? What are your actions? So even though I don't have many uh, occurrences that I would think about, Jeff, but I'm going to say it's almost like discipline agnostic um having those uh those men i mean by the way some of my mentors are not finance folks they're business they're they're you know ceos former ceos those are the folks that i call in as well mm, that's terrific uh you're at poshmark uh some people on the call may not be familiar with poshmark can you tell us a little bit about the products and the company and whether what your experience as a consumer of poshmark products has been yeah, look, one of the largest places for you to find value uh, in fashion. Um, for example, I love uh, Patagonia vests, but I never bought one from retail. I either get one when I go in a banking conference, I'm quite frugal, or uh, I buy them on Poshmark. And if you buy one today, the one that I use is like, you know, $29 with tax included, you can get three that looks the same, like brand new for 60 bucks. So you find two things at Posh. You're going to find um, a unique inventory. You're going to find value. And then the unique thing about Poshmark, which constantly I'm still learning, is the social aspect of it. It was kind of weird the first time that I list a, a product. Like the same day I had 100 people following me and becoming my friends. Say, why are you doing it? Because the power of the community. People want you to succeed. What they do is they look at your listing and share that listing to other potential buyers. And then the magic starts happening. And then I, I sold two of my first items pretty quickly. And then people put in front of you things that are relevant. So that's what it is. It's a place you can buy fashion. You can find value. You can find uniqueness. And also you may find friends there too. Well, I, I know what you said about Patagonia Vest, but I personally like uh, Trico San Rafael sweaters, and they're very expensive retail. And I, I, I find these wonderful sweaters. At, uh, it's about a third of the cost. It's, it's That's pretty right. good. We're, we're wrapping up now, and I have two questions that I like to ask each of our guests. The first one is, what's the best advice anyone has given you? Well, from a CFO standpoint, yeah. learn accounting earlier if you're not an accountant. The number two was always be recruiting, always be recruiting. And it, even if you have the most stable team, it's always good to prepare for a certain succession and always be recruiting is a very important one. Those are the two that comes to mind. 
So it, does that mean that if anyone on this call is thinking about working at Poshmark, they should reach out to you? hundred percent, hundred percent. I think we have some open roles there and there are roles that we have in even open, but uh, it's a great team, it's a great culture. And then we have a lot to accomplish there. That's great. And then the last question, if you were gonna write a CFO playbook, uh, what's one thing that a CFO can do to a CFO or someone who wants to become a CFO? What can they do tomorrow morning at their company? Very practical advice to improve performance. I'm going to say something and take it even beyond doing tomorrow for your company, but for yourself. Focus on controllable inputs. Uh, we talked a little bit about that, but again, from a business standpoint, uh, it's important to know if you have a sales company, you know, how many phone calls you're making, like focus on that as opposed to just the financial output for your career, uh, focus on the experiences as opposed to promotion. Like, what do you need to learn today? Start working backwards from if you're going to be a CFO, what are the roles you need to do and focus on yourself and things you control. Don't worry about if someone is getting promoted faster than you. It doesn't matter. You don't control it. But focus on things that you can control. For your personal life, look, like teach your kids the values that you wanted them to have. Don't well, but my kid is meeting this person. I don't like that person. You can't control who they're going to meet later on in their life. But as long as you teach what you can control are the values that you pass on to your kids. So focus on controlling inputs. You can take to any level of your life. You start it. Not even tomorrow, start that right after this call. Well, Rodrigo, thank you very much. With great advice, great stories. Uh, pleasure seeing you today. And, and Laura, thank you and Airbase for hosting the session today. Likewise, it was fun. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the opportunity.